we are talking about the family today. And yesterday, David, myself, and Emily had the opportunity to meet uh, at a meeting for clergy at Wayside Cross Ministries. And we got to interact with uh, our mayor, Tom Weisner, as well as our uh, chief of police, Gregory Thomas. I'm going to make sure I get that right. Gregory Thomas. And uh, as we were meeting with them, we were talking about how faith-based institutions can help not just curb violence, but help and partner with the police department in making our community a safer place. And it was interesting, as he was speaking, he says, you know, we're, we have very similar jobs, is we're both here to combat evil. Uh, we do so differently. Um, we're doing it through, through arrests and, uh, you know, pr- trying to prevent different things. But you're doing it in a greater way spiritually as we're seeking to restrain evil and promote that which is good. And as we, he was talking about this, and he was talking about crime in Aurora. And it's been actually pretty remarkable seeing how crime has actually gone down considerably. And there's some great churches doing some wonderful things out there, by the way. We need to continue to lift up our brothers and sisters across the city of Aurora. I mean, we have past that if there's a murder, that they show up and they start praying over that ground where there was blood that was shed, that they're meeting with families. It's, it's really cool to see some of the great things that God is doing um, in the midst of the city of Aurora. But one of the things that uh, Gregory Thomas uh, spoke about, he was talking about the importance of family. And he was, saying, he was saying that some of the most prolific offenders that we have have broken homes. And he says, we know that many of these programs that we have in place, uh, some of them faith-based, some are community-based, but helping these young people are happening in um, middle, junior high or high school. And he says, but the, the reality is a lot of the damage has already been done when they're quite young. And he was just highlighting the importance of the family. And I don't think he's highlighting anything that any of us would go, oh, that's, you know, crazy. We all know how important family is for good or for bad. I mean, if, if I were to ask you how you got screwed up, you would probably say and blame your family, right? I mean, as my cousin says, who peed in the gene pool? I mean, someone messed up the family pretty bad. And, and if you think that your family members are pretty normal, then you're the one who's really messed up. So we know that God speaks to us. And, and, and the cool thing about the scriptures, it, God speaks to us about what the family is supposed to look like and, and show us the reality of how we are to live, how we are to be, how we are to raise our, our children. Now, um, I don't know what your family situation is. I mean, we have so many different kinds of families today within our world. I mean, we've got broken families. We've got dysfunctional families. We've got blended families. We've got, I mean, just different ways of family that looks. We know people, some people have been taken away from their family. They've been raised in, in maybe a group of people. And I know some of you have been adopted. I mean, we have so many different uh, ideas and understandings of family on the board. And I want us to, to, as best as we can, to go back and see what does God intend for the family and to recover what the Scripture says because God, who created the family, knows what is best, does he not? I mean, God, God has created the family to help show us how we are to live, how we are to glorify his name. But like everything, we mess it up. And if we were to look at our world today, it's, it's no wonder that the family is a battleground. 
uh, within our world today. And, and there's people have so much confusion of what family is. I mean, and we see uh, all these different television shows that are even producing and trying to promote modern family. Or uh, I mean, we have all these different weird views of what the family is to look like. But we know that God created this institution, and we need to, as best as we can, shed all of the cultural misunderstandings that we have and go to the Scripture and see how God intended the family to be. Now, let me say this. We're all in families. For good or bad, we're all in a family. We're born into a family. We, we might have been raised differently. Um, and uh, this message just today is for all of us to see what God has for us. Now, you might, uh, are, uh, you might be single and you're not intending to have a family. You have the gift of singleness. Or maybe you're in a blended family. Or maybe your family was taken from you. Or whatever the case may be. I mean, you could be uh, you know, a grandparent or great-grandparent. And those days seem way behind of raising young children. I want us to, to all listen in today to see what God has for us, regardless of our state. Because we undoubtedly are going to interact with other people. We're still going to have relationships that we find ourselves in. Whether it's with our grandchildren or great-grandchildren grandchildren or our children, whatever it might be, we have some type of influence, or uh, whether it's parents or cousins, we're going to be interacting with people on a daily basis. Some are believers, some of them are unbelievers, and we want to continually, no matter what our status is, is point other people to the scriptures so that they might see that God values family. So we need to all tune in and listen and see what God has for us. Now, I want, us, I want you to follow along with me. Hopefully you have your notes ready to go. But before we even get into our text, I want to just lay a bit of a foundation, kind of moving back and forth through various scriptures. Then we're going to look at our text, and I want to give you some practical application points as we conclude our time together. So let's start off with the preliminary action, all right? Let's lay the foundation. Sound good? All right, here's the first point that I want us to all understand. Family is, we have to understand that it is God's creation. This is not a social institution. It's not something that just developed over time where people decided to to live together and uh, create children. This is something that was birthed in the Garden of Eden. This is that God established, that God made man, that God made woman, and he brought them together. And through their intimate relationship and the covenant bond of marriage, there were to be children that were to come for it as God willed. This is not something that we made up. This is not something the state has the ability, even though it might try to define this is something that is timeless, that is transcultural, and will be till the end of time. No matter what the government may say, we understand this is what a family is. Okay? That's, that's, that's just it. The government tries to sometimes come in and define what a family is and is not, and it can give legal recognition to different things. That does not change the scriptures. That does not change what the Word of God says. We must, as the apostle said, we must obey God rather than men. So we see that, that the family is God's creation. We also have to understand that the family is foundational to society. Foundational to society. And it, it's interesting just to see how this plays out in, in a very um, seemingly innocent way. I was reading some statistics. I like statistics. I'm a statistics guy. And I was reading some statistics this past week just talking about uh, a small little thing about eating uh, as a family. Now, I don't know how you are, but uh, our family likes to eat together. Sometimes it can become a battleground. Uh, sometimes it ends up with someone yelling at someone and the table having to be cleared. But for most types of purposes, it's usually a good time. All right? Maybe your family's a little different. Maybe you just 
join hands and sing Kumbaya. Uh, that's not my family. It's stop hitting your brother. Sit in your seat, eat your food, or you will die. Okay, that's a little bit like it is in my house. And, my, and usually it's my youngest son going, I hate this. And he doesn't want to eat anything. And it's like, I don't know how you live. I really don't. I'm just going to hook you up to a tank. Um, so we see that these, you know, this family, we, so families that eat together. Now, families that have zero to two meals, I want to compare that with families that eat five to seven times together a week. Now, I understand we're all crazy in our schedules, right? You've got baseball practice. You've got drama practice. You've got dance. If you have kids in the home that are in that, that, that uh, period of time. I mean, I was talking to this woman yesterday, our neighbor who came over and dropped their, their daughter off. She's got four kids, and they're all in lacrosse. They're all in baseball. They're all in, I mean, well, one of them's in cheerleading, and, and she's like, I, and there, one's in, she has two there in elementary school, one in junior high, and one in high school. And she's like, I don't know whether I'm coming or going three-quarters of the time. I'm just a glorified taxi. And family's crazy, so to have sometimes to have meals together is pretty hard, but you should make it a priority. Now, I want to give you some stats. This is just something that was compiled by the Heritage Foundation, and they, they noticed this. Those who have zero to two meals together per week are 11% more likely to use tobacco as compared to their, uh, their, their counterparts who eat five to seven meals per week. They're 18% more likely to use alcohol 13% more likely to use marijuana, 14% more likely to have friends who drink regularly, 15% more likely to have friends who use marijuana regularly, and 11% more likely to try drugs in the future. And, and, and think about that. That's only because you eat together. We're not talking about teaching. We're not talking about faith. We're just talking about people who have families that eat together. And you can see that the influence that the family has is monumental, and God has made it that way. I mean, think about some of the issues that you have in your life. What do you attribute that to? Is it because of a parent, parental situation, how your parent raised you or neglected you or didn't talk to you or whatever it might be? We see the power of a parent, and we see that God has made the family to be foundational to society. That's how he's made it. And as the family goes, that's how society goes. And seeing the statistic and just the rise and how people are shifting away from the family and we're seeing increases in violence, in depression, in suicide, in drug use, alcohol use among teenagers. Do these not go hand in hand? It really just is how God has made it, that the family is foundational to society. It's also, the family is also the place to, uh, where faith grows. It's a greenhouse of growth for faith. It's where faith grows is to be a place where faith grows. Now, we see this in the book of uh, Malachi chapter 2. Now, that's the last book in the Old Testament. If you take a moment just to turn there, you may not be that familiar with the scriptures. That's okay. Um, the Bible is divided into two testaments, the Old and the New, and it's the very last book. It's about four chapters long. Um, if you flip and you see the book of Matthew, it's the one right before that. So in the book of Malachi chapter 2, God is speaking to the people of Israel, and he, he reveals his purpose, one of the purposes that he has of the marriage relationship. Okay, this is God. Again, he has created it. All families of the earth are named after him, according to Ephesians chapter 3. And we see here that God established this family for this reason. I want you to read along with me. We read this. Uh, Malachi says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Why, what was God's purpose in creating marriage? Why did God do this? It says, What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God is showing that, the, or God shows us that he has established the family because he wants that to be a place where faith grows. Now, it's interesting, the family and, and our, our spiritual walk with the Lord are, I mean, that's a birthing ground to show the reality of our faith. It is a greenhouse of growth, and it's where we really see our faith played out. I mean, think about it. Where do you, who do you get most annoyed with in your life? Is it not your family? Jared's like, yeah, I live with, I got a bunch of them. I mean, think about that. It, 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 the people that frustrate us the most, the people that we don't want to see on Thanksgiving. I mean, do you have people that you don't want to see on Thanksgiving? Or Easter that you're dreading and you're already running through your mind about all the things that they're going to say about you and you're just trying to prepare yourself for that? But it's, it's to be a place where faith grows. And, you know, sometimes we've talked about this in the past, that God creates sandpaper people, people that are rough on you, but they, God has made them to help smooth us out in our walk with the Lord. That's what they're to be. And sometimes these family members can be that to us. So God, though, has established this where our faith, the reality of our faith is seen. And this is a problem in some places because we know, and maybe you're like this, is we have a tendency to be two-faced. Where we can be one way at church and then we're another way at home. And that's not what God wants us to be. It's not to be praise the Lord and all great hallelujah and then I can't have this rela- I don't have a great relationship with my wife and I can't stand my kids. That that does not that's not how it's supposed to be. It's to be where our faith is worked out is in the matrix of family. So it's to be a place where faith grows and it's to be a fountain of life and well-being. It's to be a fountain of life and well-being. You know, it's interesting. I want to look for a moment, and I'm not meaning to cast stones. I don't know what your situation is, but I want to look at intact families for a moment. And I just want to, again, cite some statistics and research. See, studies have shown that kids from intact families do better socially. These are just the stats. And are less likely to commit crime, experience psychological disorders, engage in risky behavior. They will do better in school and less likely to experience depression. Think about that. What what is that saying to us? That God values family and he has placed that to be the safe place. And that tells me that we need to fight for our families. And the more broken our marriage becomes, the more broken our children will be. We have to fight for our marriages. Now, we need to get back to what the Bible says and how God wants us to live. Remember, as the church was just starting in Colossae, criticism was starting to grow. Because uh, remember, this was written to the church at Colossae. It was in Turkey, and, and it's a new group of believers. And Paul, who's right, the author of this letter, as the Spirit inspired him, wanted to make sure that, that they, as Jesus' followers, were living their life in such ways to bring God great glory. And he, he wanted, there was criticism that uh, Christianity removed all of these uh, social barriers, uh, where there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, no male or female. And he was saying that, wait a minute, it's causing the entire society structure to, to collapse. And he's saying, no, this is how you are to live within it. Let me show you how you are to live in these relationships. And, and this matter of fact, this passage is even called the household uh, codes, is what many scholars name them. And he's saying here, I want you children, obey your parents in everything. All right, hear that, kids? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't say parents. You know, it's interesting, I hear parents say amen, but the kids are like, nah, right? It's because God has established this. Now, what does that mean? Children, obey your parents in everything. I want to look at the word children for a moment. The word there is techna, and literally means child or descendant. However, when we examine it more closely, 
we can see it more to refer to a child who is living in full dependence on their parents. This is a child living in the home. So we see that this child is living there, and, and God is speaking to that child. As Again, this is the matrix in which uh, the, the, the faith is supposed to be seen. And Paul then commands them to obey. The word is a present imperative active. It means you are to do it. It's a command, and you're to do it now. You are the one to do it. Not someone else is to do it. You, children, are to obey your parents in everything. So if we want to see Christ preeminent in our families, then, children, it requires you to obey or follow God's command. Follow God's command. It is a command that is here. Now, uh, let me say this. Children, if you are here today and you're completely dependent upon your, your parents, and, and that can mean you're young or you're, you're in your late teens, whatever it might be, if you want God's blessing on your life, then before we get to obeying your parents, you need to, you need to really give your heart to God first. See, if you give your heart to God first, this part will become easier. It, it, because if you're understanding that God has set this structure in place and you're obeying God first then it helps to obey your parents. Just like with my wife, and I shared this story last week, one of the things that impressed me about her when we were just getting to know one another, and she was telling me this story about this uh, young man she really liked, and she wanted to date him. And her dad said, no, I don't believe this is the guy for you, and I don't want you to date him. And she goes, I will submit. And he goes, well, I'm so glad that you're submissive to me. And he says, she goes, I'm not submitting to you. I'm submitting to God in you. And I was like, that is the girl for me. Sign right here. Because it really recognized that no matter what, she was going to obey God first. And that, that, that impressed me. That was attractive to me. And that's what we're, we need to understand is if before we can really obey our parents, now I'm not saying that you say, well, I don't want to obey God, that I'm not going to obey my parents. Sometimes you just need to obey. But we need to understand of giving our heart to God first. Now, the wording here is in everything and can literally be translated in all things. We're to obey in all things. Now, of course, that is not meaning, and Paul is not referring to them having you do something sinful. That's not what he was referring to there. But he wants you to obey because to understand that they care about you. And because in obeying them, you are obeying God who set up this family. It means uh, that God is going to receive glory by your obedience. Now, we are to obey, or you are to obey your parents. Why? Because that's the, the way of showing the reality of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. So you know that that's one of the commands. We are to honor our father and mother. You are to honor or give honor to your parents. Honor and give honor to your parents parents. When you are dependent upon them, we obey and honor, but as we age, we may not obey as such and that we are not in their home, but we always seek to continue to honor them, to give them credit where credit is due, and recognize, respect, and treat them as the ones who gave us life and raised us in this world. And when we do this, it pleases the Lord. Pleases the Lord. That's what our text says. It is well-pleasing, commendable. Simply put, it makes God happy. You know that God is joyous. God delights. It's pleasing to him when you obey your parents. As Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 says, which is also an aspect of the household codes. And I would ask you to turn with me uh, to that passage in Ephesians chapter 6, page numbers 979 or large print, 1245, 1245. And Paul is also writing, and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Now, I love this part here. He says, honor your father and mother. He's quoting the fifth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise. There's a promise attached to it. It's a package deal. None of the other ones had a promise attached, but this one does. And the promise here is this, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, in the Old Covenant... The Old Testament, the promise of blessing meant living long in the promised land, that God would give you a new life. But he is, Paul is quoting and importing this into the New Testament. While we know it's not referring to the, the promised land, it must be referring to something else. And in the New Covenant, the promise of the land is not physical land on earth, but eternal life, which begins when one is regenerated here and now and comes to full reality in the age to come. Paul is not teaching salvation on the basis of works. The obedience of children is evidence that they know God and results in receiving blessings from God. So everybody got that? Kids, you got it? Kids, you got it? I can't wait to be in your... I would love to be in your cars on the way home, by the way, having this conversation. It'll be great. Now, okay, I got to... I got to you know, talk about the kids for a little bit. Now, parents, it's your turn. Ready? We got, we got to step up. Here's what we have here. We are, to, we are if we are to fulfill and see Christ preeminent in our, in our families, it means exercising loving care. Loving care. Children, contrary to how you might feel between Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday or even on the way to church this morning, children are a blessing from the Lord. Okay, children are blessings from the Lord, sons of heritage from him, as the psalmist has said. We are to exercise loving care, and this is how we do it. It means fulfilling your God-ordained responsibility. God has given you the responsibility, each one of us. Now, let me say this right off the top. Um, I'm not a perfect parent, and I don't have the corner market on how to parent all the time, okay? I don't. And I have a really hard time when I see some of these really megachurch pastors who are young and their children are in diapers and they're required to write books on parenting. There's something wrong with that. Okay, we need some seasoned veterans. And we're going back to the Word of God. I've asked, tried to ask a lot of questions over the years from some people's successes and their failures to try to learn from it as we go and fearfully study and apply the Scriptures to our life. And we can see through this that it means exercising our God-ordained responsibility. Now, turn with me uh, to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, again, you might say, hey, I'm not in this stage of life right now. My children are grown on my grandchildren. That might be true, but I want you to continue to pray and point people to the Scriptures to fulfill their responsibility as parents, those that are in uh, these stages where the children are still in the home. And it's our responsibility, according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and again, this was aimed at Israel, but I think the principle is transcendent from the Old Testament into the New. And God is speaking, and he's giving the Shema, the rallying cry of Israel. It's their national theme, anthem, motto, mission statement, purpose statement, however you want to put it. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. So it's interesting. He's saying, I want you to love God. First of all, he gives a theological statement. There's one God. Lord is one. And then he says, I want you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving your neighbor as yourself is an aspect of that second greatest commandment. But it's interesting. He transitions immediately into this. You shall teach You shall teach them diligently these commands to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Let me put it this way. You shall teach them all the time to your kids 
You shall talk of them when you're sitting down in a living room and you've got a program on and something comes on and you need to, it shouldn't be something that they watch and you need to tell them why and explain from the scriptures and point them to God or, or when you're driving on the way to school or to practice or you're sitting with them at a holiday, whatever it might be, or you're sitting down to eat or at night when they're going to bed or in the morning when you wake up, you should be talking about it. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you'll be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your goods. The idea is, is you're following the Lord, you're seeking Him when you get up. It's you're putting it before your eyes, it's on your hands, it should be in your actions, uh, and it should be in your home. So when you go in and go out, you're continually reminded of our responsibility to teach our kids the faith. Teach our kids the faith. We're to take care of them, nurture them, teach them about who God is and who we are. Now I want to take back a look at, back at our text again. Fathers, look at verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I can't tell you how many times my wife has quoted this verse to me. And she says it in a smiling way, and I always feel awful. Because it's a command for parents, and it is a reminder that we as parents, and now noted it's two fathers, but it's, it's a present imperative active again. It's a command, and it means to excite, to provoke, to irritate, or embitter, or exasperate. And it means, it means us having realistic expectations. Now, again, this is aimed at fathers. Fathers were considered to be, especially in this culture, the complete head of the home. What the father said went. I mean, that's how it was. Because even children at that time were considered to be property. They could not do anything without the father's allowance. Now, some men are like, hey, I like this message. Okay? And we're, a culture has shifted a lot, and if you try this in your home and you try to exercise complete authoritarian rule, you're going to have some problems. The principle is not just for the fathers to be the head of the home, but the idea is also for the parents in interacting of the relationships with their children. Now, the idea is, is you're not going to excite, provoke, irritate, or embitter, or exasperate your kids. And what does that mean? It means having realistic expectations. Realistic expectations. Do you have realistic expectations of your kids? Do you want them to be the MVP of the Super Bowl? I mean, do you want them to be the greatest athlete, the smartest academic? Do you want them to know Greek and Hebrew and Latin and whatever else may be? And this is my prized angel. Be real. And think about the stuff that we did when we were kids. I wonder what my mom, I know what my mom's expectations were for me. Don't die and don't kill anyone. That was my mother's expectations of me. Now, I'm not saying that you don't expect your kids to do well. We don't push them, but we also have to know their limitations. Now, how do we provoke or excite them? It's not the only way we do it, but it's, also, it's be, often because we have unrealistic expectations. Yes, we're to push our kids, but we need to know the difference between pushing and shoving. There's a big difference. We can be too rigid, too demanding, too punishing, and to have too high expectations and push them too far, maybe even away from the Lord. And then what happens? They become discouraged. The wording here indicates that they would be without courage or spirit to lose heart, become spiritless, to go about their task in a listless, moody, sullen frame of mind. And a child frequently irritated by over-severity or injustice to which, nevertheless, it must submit, acquires a spirit of sullen resignation leading to despair. Being even careful in your punishments of your children, how you discipline them and the consequences you dispense to them. Now, we have to understand these realistic, have realistic expectations. We also need to make sure that we, we are respecting them as people, knowing that they too are made in the image of God. 
Respecting them as people. That's why the scripture is saying, don't exasperate them. Don't irritate them. Understand that they are their kids and you're to love on them and, and care for them and respect them that they're growing too. Respect them as people. We have to be careful. And in our home, we, you know, we, we don't have the exact same disciplinary measures uh, on, on everything. We have some that have the exact same consequence. But we discipline according to, we have several criteria in play. We have the age of the child, the gender of the child, maturity or level of understanding, disposition or personality, and the severity and the attitude of the transgression or action. Now again, I'm no child-rearing expert and have trouble with many pastors who are considered to be so, while their children again are so young. These are just some of the things that I've seen and how, how God's word has played out in many different lives. And we do this all so that they may be able to reflect the glory of God to the world. That's why we do this, so that they may be able to reflect the glory of God, that we put them in place and we prepare them. I mean, we can't make them believe. We can't make a child believe. We can, we can manipulate with them when they're young. This is why we have some statements on how to evangelize children, because we recognize that some Christians, in good intention had really bad application. And they, would, they said, well, I, I had the child who was three years old, and they said, do you want to pray right now? And the kid wants to please the parent, and they don't understand per se yet. Now, some kids miraculously can, I would, but most of the time they want to please the parent, and they, they don't know yet what they themselves are doing. So we have to be careful of that. And make sure that we are putting in possession, we are putting them in position, excuse me, that we are, we are teaching them life lessons, we are living out the scripture within their, um, in our lives, that they might see it, so to put them in a position so that they will, too, believe, as they see the reality of God in our lives, and that they will, too, reflect the glory of God in the world. Now, I know that many of us in this room are saying, okay, I, this is not how I, I did it or I'm doing it. I've messed it up. My family's broken. My kids hate me. They're grown. Uh, you might have grandchildren or maybe you're, you're, again, you could be in a position where your family is really, really messed up. Let me give some practical application points for all of us because I don't want you to leave today and be like, beat yourself up and say I'm the worst parent in the world, okay? Because we all have blown it in one way or another. We have to accept the consequences of our action, and then we have to respond and, and, and live our life in the best way that we can as God illumines us according to his word. He shows us these principles, and as we apply them to our lives now. And these are some, some thoughts that I want us to consider. Uh, thoughts that I want us to consider. First of all, I want to speak to the parents. Parents, I want, I want you to understand that there, are, for, that there is no perfect parent. You are not a perfect parent, no matter how much you try. And I think that there's this pressure on us today that because we've seen how people have been messed up, we put this pressure on ourselves because we don't want to see our kids so messed up that we think we have to do everything completely perfect. We are doing more in this generation than pretty much any other parent has ever. In that, I mean, again, we we want to have everything planned and structured and everything for their education and everything for this and have everything laid out in detail. And we put so much pressure on uh, our children. And yet we think that we can find this magic scriptural formula to guarantee our children admission into heaven. Let me tell you, there's not, because only, there's only been one perfect parent, and that is God himself, and we rebel. We rebel. I mean, you think of the parable of the prodigal son. That was a good father. He was a great dad. And his son rebelled. Now his son came back. 
Because they saw, I think he, you know, not only did he come to the end of himself, but he saw the reality of his father's faith. And it's interesting, the one who stayed home and did everything right is the one who was most self-righteous and had a hard time seeing the mercy of God. So we have to be very careful in how we go about this and understand there is not a perfect parent. And remember, scriptures such as Proverbs 22, 6. And I think many of us might be aware of this scripture. You may not be, know where the reference is. You might have heard it. And we have taken it as a promise, and it's not a promise. It's a general truth. It's a, it's a general truth, not a specific promise. And the verse is this. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, that's not a promise. It's, it's, not, it's not how it's written. It's actually written as a general truth that if you raise your children to follow Jesus, that when they are older, they will follow Jesus. But I've seen some parents say, I claimed the scripture, I held on to the scripture, and my children are complete rebels. It's because you've misunderstood it. You've, you've, you've tried to rely on this external and not the internal. And you have to understand that, that you continue to pray, you continue to preach, you continue to love, and, that, and, and pray for if they did rebel, that God would bring them back. So there is no perfect parent. Secondly, it requires us to persevere in God's principles. We need to persevere in living out the truth of God's word, even when our children do rebel or even when it gets hard. How do we handle it? Do we throw our hands up in the air and say, this doesn't work? That's stupid. Persevere, continue to teach, continue to live the truth out, no matter what others may, uh, what others may do with what other parents who seemingly were Christ followers, if they fall at your left hand or fall at your right hand, don't let other people's failures dictate your faith pursuit. Don't let other parental failures dictate your faith pursuit. Keep on keeping on and wait on God. We're to hold on to him even when things don't make sense. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3? And you could turn there with me if you want. And, and I'm looking at a, at a principle here. It's not referring in, in, uh, completely to parenting, but I think there's a principle that God has for us that I believe can apply in this situation. And these uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down and worship this, this, this image, this statue. And they refuse. And so they're arrested. They're getting ready to be thrown into the, to the fiery furnace. And before they are, Nebuchadnezzar's giving them one more shot. And he says, you, do, you bow down and worship it, and, and it'll be okay. He says, I have the ability to kill you. I have the ability to throw you into the fiery furnace. Just do it. And they respond in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, and they say this. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He's saying, hey, we're going to hold on even if it doesn't end up in our deliverance. We're going to hold on. We're going to stay true because it doesn't make sense right now, but we're going to hold on. And that's what we do as parents. We hold on to the principles of God's word, knowing that God's word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which he intended it. That God is going to touch them. That God is going to transform them. So we need to persevere in God's principles. Now, parents, I also want you to persist in prayer. 
Persistent prayer. Do you pray for your children? Now, this can be for grandparents, parents. If your, parent, your kids are far away or they've been taken from you, you can pray for your kids. Or, or you can pray for your nieces and nephews and wherever it might be. If you, don't, if, if you don't have children, again, you could have that gift of singleness, but you know some people that do, and you love those kids. Pray for them. Are you persisting in prayer and laying it out? Because prayer is powerful. It is very powerful, and I can't tell you about how many people that I know and have met over the years who continue to pray for their child even when their child rebelled. Matter of fact, uh, I was listening to Moody Radio last week during the share uh, fundraiser that they were doing, and there was one man, he was giving a testimony, and he talked about how he had turned from God and he moved to Anchorage, Alaska, and he was working at the oil fields there. And he said, I was living this completely immoral lifestyle. I was an al- I become an alcoholic. I'm doing heroin and all other kinds of drugs. And my father, who just loved me with this major love, he said, son, I'm praying for you. And he said, I'm praying two things. He said, what are you praying, dad? He said, I'm praying that God would bring you to the end of yourself and save and transform you, or I pray that he takes you out of this world. And this son got really quiet, and he said, I was afraid because I'd seen my dad's prayer request been answered for over 20 years, and I knew that he meant business, and I knew that God was going to listen. He said, it wasn't until I'm driving down on the street when I feel this tap on my shoulder, and it's God speaking to him going, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you, are you done in living a life of rebellion from me? And he said, I just stopped and I had tears flow from my eyes and God had touched my heart and brought me back to him and answered his request because God honors the, the prayer of a, of a praying parent. It is powerful. Parents, pray for your kids. Pray for your grandkids. Continue to, to lay them out before the Lord, to lift them up before him, that God would transform their heart, that God would break them and bring them to himself, that they would show them the depths of their sin and the re- reality of their rebellion and bring them forth and regenerate them and make them great preachers and speakers and singers and servants of Almighty God. Continue to pray, and I know that many of you are here today because God touched and prayed through your parent, and their parent might be gone. They have gone from this earth, but God is still honoring that prayer request, and he is touching your heart and bringing you back to himself because God honors the prayers of a praying parent. He does. And we need to continue to pray for our children, pray for them that God would protect them as they go off to colleges, that they engage in all kinds of immoral and and just horrible, sinful behavior. Pray that God would bring them back because he loves them and he died for them and he's not done with them. Pray for your children. Persist in prayer. Now I want to turn next to the progeny. I had to stick with the peas. Parents and now the progeny, the kids. Kids, this is for you. This is, this is some words to you. First of all, I want, you, you need to understand this. God wants your good. He did not give you parents because he doesn't care for you. He gave you parents because he does. God wants your good, and believe it or not, so do your parents. It may not seem so when they restrict you for different things, but experience tells them to tell you not to do this thing because they've gone through it and they have the wounds to prove it and they don't want you to experience that pain. God wants your good. Secondly, give your parents grace. Give them grace. You expect grace from them. 
Even if they don't give it, you need to give them grace. They're not perfect parents. When you came home from the hospital, you did not have a manual attached to you. And your parents don't, aren't perfect parents. They tried, and usually by the time that you figure out everything with parenting, they're gone. They're gone. But give your parents grace. And lastly, even if they were or are bad parents, even if you've been through a horrific situation, and remember, man messes things up. The devil wants to get into the family, and some of you have gone through some horrific and abuse, abusive situations. Okay? And those aren't caused by God. Those are caused by the devil. And what the devil might have meant for evil, God can use that for good to help other people and comfort them with the comfort that you have experienced through Christ. And, and don't let that affect, even if they were, they were hypocritical, maybe they had raised you in church, but they were completely hypocritical, they turned away. Don't let them prevent you from going hard after God. Don't let your parents' disobedience affect your present obedience. Don't let your parents' hypocrisy affect your holiness. Go hard after God. Even if they were or are bad parents, don't let that keep you from going hard after God. Hold on. And realize, young people, students, kids, some of the greatest revivals in history didn't start with old people. I mean, God works through older people, don't get me wrong. But sometimes it starts with people who are young. Go hard after God. And sometimes you need to, we need the younger generation to rebuke the older generation. And I pray that God uses all of us as parents, as children, to bring glory to his name. Let's close our message time in a word of prayer. Father, I know that there are many different situations going on today. And Lord, I, Lord we know that you are the God of hope and you are the God of second chances. And yet... Lord, we all know that we have to deal with certain consequences of choices that we have made, decisions that we have uh, exercised, things that we have done. But Lord, give us the grace to bear up underneath them and let, let not the, uh, our past disobedience affect our present obedience. And may we continue to testify to your greatness, knowing that you are the God of hope, that you are not through. Even though we might have blown it, we know that you can work in the worst of situations for the glory of your name, that you are the God of hope. You are the God who allows you turns. And so, Lord, I pray that you touch the hearts and minds of all of us within this room, especially those parents who are grieving, who are hurting, and they're remembering just how they failed. Lord, I pray that they, might, may, not, they may not throw in the towel, but they might hold on to you, knowing that you can still change the hearts and minds of those who have rebelled and turned away, and you will honor the prayers of those praying parents. So, Lord, use us all for the glory, honor, and praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.